everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl & Branch. We have Bowl & Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Motion and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They are completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl & Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, 15% off your order. Hey everyone, it is Wednesday, August 31st. I'm Moshe Wanunu, and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. This is the place where we bring you just the facts from verified sources and a breakdown of what matters in the news. I try to read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. I hope everyone enjoys this last day of August. Take it in, everyone. September starts tomorrow, if you can believe it. Okay, there's a lot of headlines we're monitoring today. The Justice Department overnight filed papers saying the Trump team may have hidden or moved classified papers in the lead up to that search at Mar-a-Lago. I'll have details on what they're saying. There's also the state of emergency in Mississippi in the largest city of Jackson where there's no drinkable water for the foreseeable future. How they got to this predicament. President Biden made a call on Tuesday to fund the police as he tries to shore up democratic vulnerability on rising crime. A couple quick hits today, including the last chance to get your free COVID test from the government, a heat warning in California. The sports team LeBron James and Drake are looking to own, and we'll also talk about the legacy of the man who helped bring about the end of the Cold War, Mikhail Gorbachev, the final Soviet leader. He's dead at age 91. We'll talk about his impact on history. Okay, let's start in the capital, Mississippi, Jackson, where we've been talking about that state of emergency. It is a city of nearly 200,000 and currently lacks enough water pressure to fight fires, flush toilets, and meet other critical needs because its main water treatment plant began failing Monday. The governor of the state has declared a state of emergency. He blames a long-standing water system problem that got damaged further over the summer and then uh, flooding from a river this week. But these troubles are only the latest for the city of Jackson. Again, this is the capital of Mississippi. The system there has been played with problems for years. The city has already been under a boil water notice since late July for what the state called a water quality issue. I've heard from a number of you who live in the area who have been talking about how terrible the situation has been in the city in recent months, but going back several years now. The state has begun distributing drinking and non-drinking water for up to 180,000 city residents. The National Guard is being called in to distribute the water as crews work to try to get that water treatment back online, but there is no date certain, and this could go on for weeks potentially. Because of the failure, officials have announced that all public schools have shifted to virtual learning as of Tuesday. 
The pictures here have been pretty incredible. Again, we're looking at a capital of a state, Jackson, Mississippi, where residents of all ages have been seen waiting in lines more than a mile long for at least two hours on Tuesday for just one case of bottled water. As I said, the issues here go back years. In early 2020, the water system for the city failed an EPA inspection. They wrote that the drinking water had the potential to be host to harmful bacteria and parasites. Back in February 2021, last year, a winter storm shut down the entire water system, leaving tens of thousands of residents without water for nearly a month. One major overwhelming issue here that many observers point to is systemic environmental racism in the city. About 83% of the population is black. According to census data, the majority of the state's legislature is majority white. And the mayor of the city has said that he has been asking for aid here to correct the water issues for years. Some state lawmakers in Mississippi are calling on the governor to call a special session of the legislature with the express purpose of shoring up the water system. The lawmakers have noted that other areas of the state have gotten more support and believe that Jackson deserves the same. We'll keep on watching this, and I've also listed a number of organizations in a link in the show notes if you would like to donate and help the residents of Jackson. Okay, now to the late-breaking news overnight on the Trump legal front. The U.S. Justice Department filed a 36-page document for a federal judge in Florida, and it is a doozy. The big headline is, Prosecutors obtained a search warrant for Mar-a-Lago after receiving evidence that there was a, quote, likely effort to conceal classified documents in defiance of the grand jury subpoena. Translation, the Justice Department believed that the team around Trump was either hiding or trying to move classified papers, which is what led them to ask for the urgent search warrant. The filing, which also included a photo showing an array of classified and top secret marked documents, came out just before midnight, and it is the Justice Department's most detailed account yet of evidence of obstruction of justice. It raises concerns that Trump and his attorney team look to mislead investigators about the sincerity and thoroughness of their effort to ID and return highly sensitive documents back to the government. You might recall that Trump's attorneys had asserted back in a June 3rd letter that there were no more classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, basically saying, we got nothing here for you. But the Justice Department found otherwise. This is what the counterintelligence chief Jay Bratt wrote. Quote, the government also developed evidence that government records were likely concealed or removed from the storage room and that efforts were likely taken to obstruct the government's investigation. Again, these are pretty sharp words from the head of counterintelligence. Counterintelligence meaning his job, Jay Brad, is to deal with foreign spies trying to get stuff here in the U.S. Back to this 36-page filing, Brad also wrote that the FBI, in a matter of hours, recovered twice as many documents with classification markings as the, quote, diligent search that the former president's counsel and other reps had made. He added that the fines by the Justice Department cast doubt on the extent of cooperation from the Trump team. This filing came in response to the Trump team request for a special independent master. They wanted, essentially the Trump team wanted, an independent person to go through all the documents that DOJ found on August 8th. The Justice Department used the opportunity to basically file this very long filing and say a number of things. First, that it's way too late for the special independent master because basically Trump team took more than two weeks to file this request. And by then the DOJ is like, we've gone through all the papers. We've determined what we needed, what was classified, what we uh, picked up that should be returned. So everything is basically moot at this point when it comes to that. They also took issue with Trump's assertion of executive privilege, noting there's a Supreme Court case that former presidents 
do not have executive privilege. The most striking thing here is this whole idea of diligent search. The uh, Trump attorneys, they include the letter in the filing the DOJ does that the Trump attorneys said, hey, we searched the premises, we saw nothing here. And the Justice Department in this filing is saying, by the way, when we searched the premises, we found 100 additional classified documents. It's a blistering court filing and essentially says the Trump team may have hidden or moved classified papers. Uh, and this really speaks to the idea that there's three crimes being investigated here. And this foremost among them talks about obstruction of justice, that they believe that while the Trump team claims they were trying to cooperate here, that ultimately with this search, the government quickly discovered that it's not just a negligence here, but that there were specific attempts to cover things up or hide things from the government. That is the belief we got from that overnight filing from the Justice Department. Meanwhile, yesterday in Pennsylvania, President Biden was focused on crime. He made a forceful call to fund the police, fund the FBI, and promised that he would push through an assault weapons ban as soon as he has the votes. The president outlined his, quote, Safer America plan. It's a $37 billion allocation in the annual budget that goes towards law enforcement and fighting crime. That also includes $13 billion over five years to hire an additional 100,000 police officers across the country. This promise comes as Democrats have gotten a lot of criticism from certain elements of the party since 2020 when uh, certain progressives were calling for defunding the police. Crime has risen in a number of cities across the country. And so Democrats, including the president, see crime as a huge issue they need to reinforce to voters that they also take seriously. Biden was in Pennsylvania where there's a key governor's uh, and Senate race, as well as all the House seats are up uh, this November. He said, quote, when it comes to public safety in this nation, the answer is not to defund the police, it's to fund the police. He went on to sympathize with police officers, saying they protect us. They are also expected to be psychologists, sociologists. They are killed dealing with domestic violence. We ask so much of them. We need to support them. As part of that speech, Biden also gave a forceful defense of the FBI. He was calling out uh, former President Trump and allies of the former president, who he says have been unfairly uh, demeaning the federal law enforcement agency since that search warrant was conducted of Mar-a-Lago earlier this month. He said it was, quote, sickening to see new attacks on the FBI. And again, he's referring here to attacks from some congressional Republicans, including members of leadership who called to either defund or even destroy the FBI over that search. As I mentioned, Biden also called for an assault weapons ban. He says that he was part of the Senate in 1994 when they passed the initial federal assault weapons ban. That lasted for 10 years and then elapsed back in 2004. Biden told voters at the rally that he will do it again. The issue here, of course, is that he doesn't have the votes in the Senate right now. And that's part of the argument Joe Biden is making here. He's saying essentially, give me the president more Democratic votes in the Senate and I will bring home an assault weapons ban that'll help cut down on mass shootings in this country. One other thing to put on your radar, Biden is going to be back in Pennsylvania on Thursday where he'll be delivering a primetime speech. You'll probably see it live on networks or on cable news Thursday night in what he says is a continued battle for the soul of the nation. Uh, look for that speech to be about defending democracy, his argument that Democrats are protecting democracy against what he has called now Trump's, quote, semi-fascism. Republicans were outraged by that term. They've been highly critical there. Either way, we'll be watching what the president has to say this Thursday night. Okay, I know a number of you have gotten those free COVID rapid tests from the government since they announced that program earlier this year. Officially due to the end of funding, the program will be suspended this Friday. So you just have a couple days left here to get 
free COVID tests if you want them over at covidtests.gov. Every U.S. household is eligible for three sets of tests from the website. So if you still haven't gotten all your tests, now is the time to place the order. The Biden administration says they will bring back this program if they get funding from Congress. But so far, Congress has chosen not to fund the free testing program. And so that will end at the end of this week. I'll link to the website where you can get them in the show notes. Okay, a quick weather story here for those of you out on the West Coast. A long and possibly record-setting heat wave is expected to hit California this week. It'll bring temperatures into the low 100s with little relief expected through early next week. Most of Northern California is currently under an excessive heat watch, while Southern California is in an excessive heat warning where temperatures could exceed 110 degrees in the next few days. That includes LA County, where temperatures up to 115 degrees can be expected. San Diego, where temperatures may hit 109 degrees. The heat warning is in effect from Wednesday until Monday of next week, according to the National Weather Service. Of course, the concern in California with heat like this beyond uh, keeping people cool is wildfires. Okay, I went ahead abroad here to remember a Cold War era leader who passed away on Tuesday. Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the eighth and final leader of the Soviet Union, who waged a losing battle to try to salvage the crumbling empire, died Tuesday at the age of 91. Though he was in power for less than seven years from 1985 to 1991, Gorbachev unleashed a breathtaking series of changes. He tried to reform the country through those late 80s, trying to preserve the Soviet Union, but ultimately failed. His key policies were called glasnost and perestroika, essentially opening up information as, as well as opening up the economy. He was trying to gradually reform the country, but those changes quickly overtook him and resulted in the collapse of the authoritarian Soviet state, the freeing of Eastern European nations from Russian domination, and the end of the East-West nuclear confrontation. When you look at his legacy, he's actually viewed much more kindly in the West than back in Russia. His decline there was humiliating over the late 80s. His attempted reforms again failed as Germany opened up, as, as Poland opened up. Remember, the Soviet Union had control over the entirety of Eastern Europe, as well as uh, more than a dozen countries that would eventually see independence in the early 90s. This includes countries like Ukraine, Kazakhstan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, etc. All those Soviet republics that were under their domination for decades that would see independence uh, at the end of Gorbachev's term. Gorbachev would see his power sapped by an attempted coup back in the summer of 1991. Boris Yeltsin would rise up against him. Remember, Yeltsin was the leader after him. And so Gorbachev would spend his last months in office effectively watching the collapse of the Soviet Union. He resigns in December of 91. The next day, the Soviet Union was officially no more. Gorbachev has always defended his actions there, saying it was not his intent to bring apart the collapse of the Soviet Union and that he could have used force, military force, to try to keep the country together, but didn't because he feared chaos in the nuclear-armed country. In an interview in recent years, he told the Associated Press that, quote, the country was loaded to the brim with weapons and it would have immediately pushed the country into civil war if he had tried to keep it together. Going back here, back in 85, he took power at the age of 54, a uh, successor to basically three party leaders who had died very quickly in succession. The country had had very high hopes for him. But uh, within a year, he already had one of his biggest mess ups, Chernobyl. When that reactor exploded, the Kremlin remained silent at first, offering no information about radiation levels. In fact, with the radiation levels increasing dramatically, he insisted on holding major parades in Kiev. He actually didn't address the accident for more than three weeks. And instead of dealing with it, he chose instead to berate the West for exploiting the news for anti-Soviet propaganda. So coming out of the Chernobyl debacle, where the country, because it was so closed, blocked out information, 
was one of the reasons he launched his program of Glasnost, trying to demonstrate the Soviet system could be more open and honest and uh, allow for a discussion of its failings. However, by then, there was so much frustration at home, frustration in Eastern Europe after decades and decades of occupation. Gorbachev didn't effectively realize the dangers of opening things up a crack. And so basically people swung the door completely open, leading to freedom in countries across Eastern Europe and uh, calls for independence among all those states that once made up the Soviet Union. Many Russians saw this collapse as embarrassing, blamed him for what they felt was the falling apart of the great empire. Putin, for his part, who's now been in charge for 20 years, has called that the biggest failure in Russian history and has been looking to avenge it. It's one of the reasons he invaded Ukraine six months ago and has been so intent on rebuilding what he feels was the once great Soviet empire. For his part, Gorbachev in the last couple of years has been very critical of Putin, saying basically Putin is reversing all of the things that Gorbachev intended, a free Russian uh, country that is actually a part of the world. We got an update from NASA late Tuesday. They will make another go at launching back to the moon with that Artemis rocket on Saturday. If you recall, they had to scrub the Monday morning launch with about 40 minutes to go because one of the four engines was not cooling appropriately. So they called it off. They've been doing research. The moon mission manager says they will try a different procedure for reloading propellant into the rocket. Basically, they're gonna to try to chill the rocket sooner. Three of the rockets were behaving uh, the right way. One of the rockets was way too hot, which is what led them to stop the launch on Monday. The launch window will open up Saturday at about 2.17 p.m. Eastern time. If they're actually able to get the rocket off, by the way, this is the, gonna be the most powerful rocket uh, launched to the moon ever. The mission will take about six weeks and the Orion space capsule, this is attached to the rocket, will take several dummies for testing around the moon. It's actually gonna be the furthest that NASA has ever gone into space. The idea here is to test all the elements, including radiation and ensure that the uh, space capsule is good for human beings. If all goes according to the plan, the rocket comes back in six weeks. The hope is to send humans back around the moon in 2024 and then landing on the moon in 2025. That'll include the first woman on the moon. The last time humans were on the moon was back 50 years ago in December 1972. Okay, a bit of economic news. The number of open jobs in the US rose in July after three months of declines. It's a sign that employers are still urgently seeking workers despite a weakening economy and high inflation. There were 11.2 million open jobs available on the last day of July. That is nearly two jobs on average for every unemployed person, official unemployed person. Of course, we've been talking about the underemployed and the people who've left the workforce altogether. Either way, businesses have listed 11.2 million open jobs. That is up even from June. Uh, and while this may seem like good news, open jobs, available jobs, a uh, great jobs market for those looking for it, the concern here is the Federal Reserve is seeking to cool hiring and the economy, and so they've been raising short-term interest rates. Think about it this way. The Fed is so concerned about all the available jobs out there because if uh, they're competing for workers, they're going to have to pay higher wages. And higher pay means that that's more money for workers who then are able to use that money to spend it on the economy, leading to uh, higher prices and higher inflation. Essentially, while it may seem good that there's more money going to the pockets of those unemployed getting these jobs, the Fed's concern is inflation, inflation, inflation. And the more money that's out there in the economy, the more money people have to spend will translate to higher prices, higher prices translate to inflation. And so there were some economists on Tuesday who looked at that number wary. The uh, markets have been dropping in the last few days because of the concern that inflation continues to be a big issue. 
All right, a bit of social media meets business news. Snapchat is planning to lay off approximately 20% of its more than 6,400 employees. Snap is just the latest tech company to announce layoffs as all of those companies have been hard hit this year. Snapchat's stock price is actually down 80% since the beginning of the year. And so that has obviously necessitated some of these cutbacks. It looks like it'll be just over 1,000 employees. Snapchat has had a couple failed experiments in the last couple of years, including their augmented reality spectacles glasses, as well as their Pixie camera drone. This was a drone effectively you could operate with your phone. That was recently canceled after being on sale for just a few months. Snap still has a strong user base, a very young user base. There's about 347 million daily users. That's actually more than Twitter, but the company has only managed to turn a profit once since it first went public in 2017, and that's one of the key issues here. We'll see uh, what transpires for Snapchat here, despite their strong user base, how they continue to find a way to grow against TikTok and against all that Meta provides, that includes Facebook and Instagram. All right, a bit of sports news here that caught my attention. Drake and LeBron James are among the group of investors that are looking to purchase the Italian soccer team, AC Milan. We learned this from the Financial Times. The deal is expected to go for about $1.2 billion for the Italian soccer team. It'll involve the New York Yankees as well as Main Street Advisors. That's the LA-based investment fund that's comprised of money from LeBron, Drake, as well as legendary music executive Jimmy Iovine. You might know Jimmy I. He actually started Beats by Dre with Dr. Dre and is actually part of a great HBO documentary called Defiant Ones. I recommend everyone watch it. It's a great history of basically the last 40 years of music. But I digress here. We're talking about the purchase of the Italian soccer team. Essentially here, this is not LeBron and Drake basically shelling out directly for the soccer team, but because they put their money into this Main Street Advisors investment fund, they will essentially be the owners of this Italian soccer team if the deal goes through. I should add, by the way, that LeBron is no stranger to investing in sports teams. He currently has stakes in the Boston Red Sox, the Pittsburgh Penguins, and the Liverpool Football Club out of England. Interestingly here, this brings together LeBron and the New York Yankees to buy this other team, while LeBron also owns the Red Sox. Either way, uh, LeBron has shown quite the business prowess in addition to continuing to play. As I reported recently, he has a, a two-year extension with the LA Lakers, in addition to all of these uh, side hustles, and I should say main hustles at this point, uh, given the money uh, that he's been pursuing through the years. Before I leave you today, I should note that today marks 25 years since Princess Diana's death. Many of us remember where we were when we learned that the Princess of Wales was tragically killed in that car crash in Paris back on August 31st, 1997. Officially, and I've been looking at several UK papers here, there will not be an official commemoration of the 25th anniversary of her death, and Prince William and Prince Harry won't even be together for the occasion. They were 15 and 12 years old, respectively, when their mother passed away. They were last together for the anniversary in 2017. That was the 20th anniversary of her passing, and said at the time that that would be the last last time they publicly commemorate her death. The two princes and their families have instead opted to mourn the passing of their mom separately. At a recent private charity dinner, Harry told guests that he wanted to spend the day privately with his family, remembering his mom's incredible work and love for the way she did it. Harry added that he wishes that his children could have met Princess Di. Every day, I hope to do her proud, he told a group recently. I wanna thank everyone for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. We'd love your feedback on how we're doing or what we're covering, any, frankly, anything that's on your mind, email me, podcast at mo.news. You can also subscribe to my newsletter, the Mo News newsletter, over at monews.bulletin.com. And remember to follow me for the latest and greatest on Instagram over at, at Moshe, at M-O-S-H-E-H. -E and before you go, don't forget to follow us and review us in the App Store. Every review makes a difference, and I appreciate all of your support. I'll see everyone back here tomorrow.